My name's Adam. Did it do it again? Nope. Now okay. it's not moving, so now I can actually fucking mix us. It must be something to do with, uh, like when we're on a call. It wants to adjust the recording volume based on the call volume or something. That could be that or a coven of audio witches. Yeah, because right now um, it's not like I can blow out all the meters I want without uh, having to adjust anything, which is incredibly nice. It's what I've always been looking for. Hell yeah. We rolling? Of course. Okay. Um, did you see the video? The uh, the guy executing his neighbors in this snow shovel thing? No. Is it real? Yeah. It's... Well, where... I mean, uh, I'm not going on live leak. Uh, I don't know. I... I uh, Bianca showed it to me yesterday. It you happened like him a, with a snow shovel. No, 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 no. They were. Fu- it was snowing in Pennsylvania. They got in an argument. Apparently, they'd been arguing for like um, I don't know, ten years or something. <laughs> and the one neighbor first shot him with a pistol. Right. They fall down. Then he comes. I th- I think he has an AR, but I couldn't quite tell. And then just literally puts the gun up to their head, finishes him off, and splits his. Splits his wig? Yeah, and then he goes in his house, kills himself. Oh. But, like, when you're watching it, I don't... It's, like, one of the most disturbing videos it's I've cold. ever... Yeah, it's just, like, the guy's just, like, straight up, like, executes him. Yeah. I'd rather watch, like, a cartel execution where at least there's some passion to it. <laughs> where they're yelling at him because he did something wrong. Okay. I don't want to watch, like, that's just cold. He's just like, I'm going to do this to you. Well, okay. Apparently, they were throwing snow on his driveway. Yeah. Is why he, but I have a feeling there's a lot of other factors in between just that because, uh, but then again, uh, you grew up in Minnesota. I, I, I lived in Iowa. Now I've lived here forever. <sighs> snow in your neighbors is a fickle thing. One of my neighbors on. My mom's street, the street I grew up on my entire life. Mm-hmm. His policy is oh he God. throws his he he <laughs> he throws the snow in the street, like no matter if it's been plowed or not. And same with leaves, he doesn't put them in bags. He blows them into the street. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. It is. It is. Okay. But it's like he's just the biggest piece of shit of all time. Yeah. And I'll I'll tell it. I'm not going to say his name, but he lives on my parents' street. It's awful. <laughs> Why is there always one of those? There has to be. There's somebody that just cannot play by the fucking rules of society that are set in. They just can't do it because they're above that shit. Dude, I remember when Phil was still living here, he had just mowed the lawn, and there's a few blades of grass that landed on their sidewalk. Yeah. Um, he They came out of the house and demanded that he sweep it up. It's fucking grass. Yeah. That could have come on. That could have flown from literally anywhere. Yeah, it's just like, why are you so anal about yeah. that? Like, I don't give a shit. Plus, I'm not just gonna come onto your fucking property and yeah. start sl- sweeping. I know that's why you have to have a very high level of ignoring. Yeah. Uh, that's what I do now. Yeah. Every time he's talking to me, I just pretend I can't hear him. Walk away. Well, it's either that or uh, you shoot yeah. him with a pistol and finish him off with an AR, Cody. That very well could be the Cody story. <laughs> well, knowing that guy, I feel like he'd be the one killing us because he seems like a killer, not uh, not us. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's a fucking grisly film. <laughs> and for those who don't deal with snow, something about snow and your neighbors, I just... I don't know what it is. It drives people nuts yeah. here. 
It definitely does. It definitely does. And guess <laughs> what? It's just because there's uh, uh, there's a set of rules that we have. Yeah. As a society. Yeah, have you and know- all you got to do is deal with the snow in the way that the society does. It may be a pain in the ass, but everybody does it, and everybody gets to go home. Yeah. Just put the snow in your yard. That's right. Or your boulevard. Or your boulevard. Uh, yeah, and don't... You don't let it land in your neighbor's yard. Keep no. it in your own yard. Yeah. I don't know what difference it makes because there's no. just snow piles everywhere. But no. Well, we have it. a good thing. My parents, anyway, they have a good thing <laughs> with their immediate next door neighbor. So uh, the driveway butts up to their grass, right? Yeah. That's one yeah, of those. Yeah. yeah. So they don't care. We shovel. You can shovel all the snow on their yard as you want. But just I apparently make sure it's okay or mm. you'll get fucking executed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that shit just happened like three days ago too. By the way, so well, that's awful. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bumblebutt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about this week? It's Adam the Liar. <laughs> you want to hear why I'm a liar? Why are you a liar? Because I said this was going to be a two-parter, and it's a three-parter. I mean, this guy's a world famous dictator. I mean, is anybody surprised? I I was hoping not. I hope everyone loves it because it's. Too good for me to leave shit out. Some of these things are too good. Yeah. And the societal implications, we don't know anything about Uganda as whiteies mm. over here. Do you mm. understand? We have no idea. So I kind of also have to sweep that into the story as well, <laughs> some Ugandan, so we can get a little Ugandan frame of mind. Well, I mean, technically, this guy, as far as the world is concerned, is a very important character for the uh, 21st century, right? Certainly. So uh, he played a big role in Africa and Uganda and world politics, technically. So it's, uh, let's learn about him. Let's do it. When we last left off, Milton Abote had become the first prime minister of the newly independent Uganda in 1962. Mm. Within a few months, Abote was able to turn some of his attention to the military, which he found incredibly lacking. His and the army's main concerns were the still constant prevalence of British officers and the low level of pay for African soldiers. Right. Abode wanted an air force and a second battalion for the Uganda Rifles, formerly the King's African Rifles. The British were hesitant to pay for an air force, but Goldemir's Israeli government was ready to help, offering to train pilots, sell planes on the cheap, and train the officers for the newly proposed second battalion. Is his name, is this a person, Golda? She was the first uh, woman prime minister of Israel. Okay. Interesting name there. There's uh, a great picture of her and Amin standing next to each other. Really? She's a she's a pretty frail. Is this is this what um, Lords of War was uh, based off? Was that was Nicholas Cage actually Golda? Nicholas Cage was Golda Mir in <laughs> Lords of War. Wow! Isn't he selling firearms yes, in Africa? Somewhere? Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean. I kind of remember how this goes, but uh, from the onset, it sounds like a good thing. He needs financial support. They're a brand new republic, and their GDP is in the fucking toilet. So playing, trying to play the British off the Israelis for weapons and stuff like that, mm. it's really the only option. And the, at this point, the Britons didn't like the Israelis, correct? At this point, the British and the Israelis were fighting for the same thing, anti-Arab Okay. Uh, Western-based, that mm. kind of stuff. So they were allied in that sense, but they were angry that the Israelis were gaining 
a foothold in Uganda as far as respect the British, even though they weren't the colonial masters anymore, they still wanted to be the ones that Uganda relied on. What's bigger landmass? Oh, UK. UK. Yeah. Okay. Is right. Kyle is very small. Very small. Very so small. is uh, the UK. UK is very small as well. Yeah. At first, British officers welcomed or at least tolerated Israeli presence. But when the Jews tried messing with the old tried and true recruitment and promotion patterns, the Brits were furious, as was Amin. He wasn't happy about this. A series of events across East Africa in 1964 put a slight halt to Israeli and British rising tensions. The militaries of independent Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda were discontent with the almost no progress that was being made to phase out the British. In the last week of the first month of 1964, this would boil over into outright revolt. Great Britain went into full panic, worst-case scenario mode, which is common to anxiety sufferers like myself. The fact that these revolts were coordinated made the Brits immediately jump to this must be communist interference. Were the Brits, did the Brits have the um, Iron Curtain fear too? Oh, the entire Western really world did. did. Entire okay. Western world was united against communism. Okay, all right. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, they don't really teach about what how British felt about it uh, in America, but I definitely remember it was a big uh, point in history class. Oh, yeah. It was the fear of Russia and the propaganda America was putting out and, and all that. Absolutely. Distrust the Russians. That was you know, a... can I say something controversial? Yes. Um, so we were talking to Leslie. I was mentioning that documentary I watched this morning. They had a video of Stalin. Um, I know he's a very bad person, but man, that mustache is exquisite. Yeah, there's none better. Fucking hell, man. Jesus. Do you have to be communist to get that thick of a mustache? Uh, yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to give away all my possessions to the state, but, uh, my mustache still ain't growing. Although in China, I'm not seeing a lot of, uh, cool mustaches, so. Just Fu Manchus? Yeah, maybe yeah. it's only the Ruskies who get it. I think so. Well, guess what? It wasn't communist interference. These mutinies began in the independent state of Tanganyika in 1961. Tanganyika only existed for four years, from 61 to 64, before joining with the People's Republic of Zanzibar to form Tanzania. Africanization was crawling along for the short-lived country, and its citizens were becoming more and more unruly about it. Intellectuals in the country were preaching revolution, socialism, communism, and even nationalism at the same time. The population was being stretched ideologically and politically to its breaking point. Honestly, I know we're very different, but those four words you just said feel like America in 2021. Seriously. I hear those words repeatedly mentioned. Anytime there's mm. crisis, mm. there's going to be there's going to be revolution, socialism, mm. communism, nationalism. Those are the four that people are going to jump to right away. I mean, you literally have, let's see, Revolution Antifa, you have uh <laughs> Bernie Sanders for socialism. I don't know who's communism, whatever you want to put. And then you have Donald Trump for nationalism. That's right. Uh, there you go. You got the four horsemen of the uh, political apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. The bulk of Tanganyika. That's a tough word, it's dude. Tough. That is tough. The bulk of Tanganyikans expected economic growth upon independence. And three years later, they were just as poor as when they were owned. On January 12, 1964, the military and police went on strike, 
and on the 20th, they imprisoned both their white and African officers and seized government buildings. Some of the lower classes started attacking and killing Indians and Arabs that ran most of the country's commerce. Since there was no police force left, the Tanganyikan government were unable to do anything but come to an urgent deal with the revolting soldiers, granting huge pay raises and the deportation of British officers. Now, you mentioned the first episodes. The Brits put the Indians here to run the businesses, correct? Right. Originally to build the railroads. And then from there, they set them up Mm. as the uh, uh, business class since technically they were British passport holders people of the commonwealth or whatever do you remember uh i don't remember what show it was but they were talking about how british the britons were like super protective of india at this time like they didn't want anybody going in in there like they were hiding something about it i i always wondered nobody knows why yeah Maybe what they did, had did they, some Indiana Jones shit going on. Well, that's on what I mean. Did they yeah. find some, like, cool magic shit or something? Or Crystal skull. The secret to tooth straightening? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they all look great now. They found an <laughs> ancient Invisaligns there. <laughs> <laughs> the mutinous army quickly returned to their barracks, but the spark had spread all over East Africa, specifically Kenya and Uganda. And the wheel of insubordination spins much faster than the wheel of Africanization. Abote, smelling the smoke of unrest on the air, destroyed transport links with Tanganyika and sent the police to take control of key military sites in Uganda just in case the Ugandan rifles started wanting to do their own revolt. Okay, he thought it was going to spill over. Preventatively, on January 22nd, Abote promised to raise army pay, but didn't give a date on when he would do it. When the white major, Campbell, showed the soldiers a letter from Abote promising the raise, one private Orsino spoke up and asked, Why are you asking me to salute you when this isn't even your country? God is that. I mean, that's a valid question. Unlike in Tanganyika, the Ugandans didn't round up their British officers. They simply ignored them. Abote responded by sending all regiments not actively mutinying to the northeast corner of the country to avoid contagion. On January 24th, the Ugandan rifles added another demand. Immediate deportation of all non-Ugandans, officer and NCO alike. So they wanted them all gone. Get them all out of here. When the Uganda Minister of Regional Affairs went to the Jinja barracks to try and explain why that wouldn't be possible... Things got tense. The soldiers force-fed the minister the corn slop they were forced to eat for every meal while they took turns driving his fancy Mercedes around the base. Thankfully for the minister, Idi Amin strolled into the barracks and put a stop to the rising tension, convincing the troops to return to their billets. The the priest had a Mercedes and corn slop? He was the minister of regional affairs. Oh, yes. So they gotcha. tied him to a chair and forced him to eat this fucking corn slop and okay. stole the keys to his Mercedes. <laughs> I thought for some reason in my head I was like, when I when I hear minister, I think of a holy man. I'm like, but to be honest, let's let's be real here. There's plenty of pastors in the world who have very fancy things. There's some that have private jets. So. Yeah, like Jolie Osteen. Uh, can you imagine if Joel Osteen was here and they stole his private jet and just went driving off on it? They'd be pretty sweet. That would be awesome. <laughs> he, he probably still wouldn't open his church up to him. <laughs> it kept boiling. Amin was able to put a Band-Aid on the situation 
but it was always only temporary. The army was furious. Abote realized he needed British assistance. Luckily for him, the Brits already had an aircraft carrier with 500 Royal Marines in the ocean outside Tanganyika. Seven cargo planes brought them to Entebbe International Airport, which they quickly secured before receiving their very vague mission. Assist the Uganda government to maintain internal security. Good luck, Royal Marines, just uh, d- d- maintain internal security. I suppose it's probably more like... Man- <laughs> <laughs> I can't even do deaf? a British. Are they no, deaf? I was thinking of like a horsey mouth person saying that. Shish, do you go into government to maintain internal security, goof? Get a bunch of wankers. <laughs> In the early morning hours of January 25th, Abote ordered the Royal Marines to retake Jinja military base. The Marines were able to catch the army off guard and they took the base without casualty. Is it just me? You keep saying Jinja, and I feel like that's like a, a boy band with five gingers. It's like, a, it's the hood way to say ginger. Hey, my ginger. We, we got new gingers on the block <laughs> on stage right now. It's the first boy band to play in Uganda, the Jinja Boys. Jinja Boys. <laughs> During the raid, Amin was up north on a recruitment safari and immediately returned upon hearing the news. On January 26th, Amin gathered the soldiers' grievances and requests and contacted Aboti with them. Aboti agreed to immediate pay increase as well as phased withdrawal of British officers. And for his help negotiating the settlement, Amin was given command of the battalion stationed at Jinja. Abote was facing intense heat from Parliament for calling in the old colonial masters to deal with internal strife. They did not appreciate Abote quickly going to the British instead of trying to figure it out in-house. Okay, and uh, Amin is basically playing the middleman right now. Exactly. So he's he's kind the go-between. He's kind of the voice piece for the soldiers mm-hmm. and whatever else. Okay. And guess what? They all fucking love him for Real, I suppose that uh, will explain how he got into power then. Mm-hmm. Um how big is the battalion? How big do you know how big that is? At is this it... time, that would be 10,000 10, troops in wow. this battalion. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty good size. Feeling slightly embarrassed and a little chastened, Abote went on a face saving campaign. He blamed the British for training the army badly, and he refused to call the unrest a mutiny, referring to it only as a sit down strike. Then he did some real authoritarian shit when he created a board of censorship to silence unhelpful reportings of the protests. It's never a good sign. Nope. Amin used this opportunity to gobble up even more power. He was given full control of the 1st and 2nd battalions. He improved sleeping conditions and rations, including buying mattresses instead of just wooden pallets for the soldiers to sleep on. I hope there's sleep number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Dak Prescott says it's the best sleep of your life. I know. I've, I've seen him. <laughs> And the Ugandan army became the highest paid army across the entire continent. Not only that, but the army was now a special interest group that was more than willing to use force to protect their status and privileges. Groups of soldiers began acting like street gangs with little to no risk of consequence. Yeah, I. here's the thing. I suppose that is a hard thing to balance, right? Absolutely. Where you're like... You want them treated right, but you don't want to give too much power when they then they think they're like the end all be all. And it's just I that's don't know. how this shit happens. Like, that's how rogue military generals become. That's how they overthrow Leaders. the government. Isn't that what my Myanmar is right now? Myanmar. Yeah. 
That sounds terrifying. Did you know that in Japan during World War II, the admir- the Admiralty was autonomous? Their military acted on their own accord. Really? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Phil covered recently in regards to that, there's like four or five soldiers in, I think, the Philippines who refused to believe the war was over. Yeah, and until like, like the 70s, yeah. right? Yeah. No, 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 no. They were, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was in, they were in there like 20 years. Yeah. Just like killing pigs from yeah. local villages to oh, survive yeah. and stuff. And, and people, too. Yeah, that shit's nuts, what the man. Fuck? They They were never told by a commanding <laughs> officer to stop. Abote established a new secret paramilitary security service called the General Security Unit, or GSU. This was comprised of a thousand ride-or-die Abote fans. Their major assignment was information gathering on regular army soldiers, politicians, students, civil servants, and merchants. Soon, the GSU got more funding and resources than the regular army. <sighs> Starting to sound like the uh, Mexican cartel, if we're being real here. Shit, man. Isn't he there had... some of... Uh, don't they, like, go out and, like, find information on these people and dispatch of them if they need to? It's like... Or Stalin. Yeah. Or yeah, true, any authoritarian true. regime. This is what they do. They have their own private uh, Gestapo that does this kind of bullshit. Would you put the MAGA boys in there? The Boogaloo boys? They're not smart enough. <laughs> <laughs> They are the, real dumb. It's the worst private military you've ever seen in your life. I love, uh, on Reddit, they have a bunch of pictures of them. Like, <laughs> m- most of them have the cheapest AR-15 you can buy <laughs> with no sights on them. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with that thing? Here's the thing. When I watch those videos, it reminds me of most of the, the citizens I used to deliver pizza to when I was at uh, Mabe's, yeah, Gross. in the trailer park. Oh, yeah. in the Nixonville. Yeah, yeah back in Iowa. Yeah, back yeah, in yeah. Iowa, the the, uh, the country folk For there. sure. Yeah, they yeah. had the widespread apart eyes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm and telling you. it's just you. like disheveled hair, uh, pubic beards everywhere, just like the full tactical boys are, are just make me... Ugh. You can tell they play video games all night, and then Ugh. they put on like their, their gear they got from a military surplus store finally. They got like a boner. You can just tell. Oh yeah, they think they're re- they think they're <laughs> Captain Price is what they think. They said, "Who's this muppet? <laughs> we'll get him next time. <laughs> Mission file. We'll get him next one." The British were debating their future with the Ugandan army well before the mutiny started. In March 1964, the British Secretary of State visited the capital city of Kampala to carry out negotiations with Abote. He made it clear that if Britain were to retain a military presence in Uganda, they'd have to yank the Israelis or at least not let any more into the country. Abode agreed and said, Hey man, I ain't trying to start no chess game between you two Western powers. Mm. The next day after the meeting, the British Army commander was fired by Abode. He refused to talk about it. Another day later and all the British officers and NCOs were relieved of duty. On July 1st, Parliament made the announcement that Ugandanization of the army had taken place. Hell yeah. Yeah, so he basically said, hey, how about you don't tell me who who, who is or who isn't in my country right now, Great Britain? And he just kind of swept them out mm-hmm. here. Interesting. On July 6th, Abode showed up in London with a list of equipment he wanted the Brits to supply with the implication that it should be a gift. So he's trying to let them buy their way back into his good graces here. Okay. The British dragged their feet. They'd been in the Empire game for a long time, 
and they knew when they were getting jerked around. The Brits already knew they were being cucked by the Israelis, and soon the proof would come in by the plane load. It started with 120mm mortars, then six training officers, then Abote withdrew three pilots from the British training program and instead sent them to Israel. On August 12th, four Israeli aircraft landed along with a bunch of Air Force personnel. British training officers started receiving the cold shoulder from their former Ugandan comrades. The Israelis were very excited to gain influence in a country which bordered the Arab world and was also a strategic position at the center of a rapidly decolonizing Africa. The Brits acted like petulant children, withdrawing all British servicemen and as much of their equipment as they could in going home, explaining this as... A clear consequence of the evident switch to Israel. Yeah, fucking so, babies. August 22nd, 1964, the last, the last British officer took off from the airport, ending a connection between the Ugandan troops and the British army that had remained unbroken since 1895. Gee, almost 100 years. Yes. Jesus. This switch to Nubu, Israel, coincided with Amin being away in Britain for training at the School of Infantry. When Amin returned, his rival officer, Aplot, was promoted to brigadier general and given overall control of the army, while Amin was promoted to full colonel and given the title of deputy commander. So which one's a higher ranking? Brig general. Brig general. Brigadier general. Brigadier general, yeah. General is always going to be higher than colonel. Okay, all right. From the British perspective, Amin was the only pro-British officer left in the country. And from a Bodhi's perspective, he now had to rely on Amin because the troops were foaming at the mouth loyal to him. Newly minted full bird Colonel Amin came out stronger than ever after the 1964 mutinies and removal of the Brits. So he's kind of in a weird zone where he's loyal to the Brits, but he also helped remove them... And his army wanted them, or his soldiers, I guess, wanted them gone, but he's still kind of loyal to the... You know what I'm saying? This yes. It's kind of a lot of weird... It's insane. Yeah. The, the, the British hate Abode at this point mm. because he's, he keeps doing them, but they love Amin because they've trained him his whole life. He, they know how good of a soldier is. They know how much he, they, they think he's just a stupid order following stooge. Uh. So they fucking love him. And he respects the chain of command, so he <laughs> is loyal to a Boti, mm. and obviously they just see it as he's in, in between a rock yeah. and a hard place. They see him as the future of Uganda. Britain sees him as the u- future of Uganda at this okay. point. Okay, they just have to go along with a Bote for now, yeah. kind of. Everyone thing. could smell, even by 1965, everyone could smell in the air that a coup was coming. It was just a matter of when. What, I mean, just from what you're talking about here, sounds like Abote is kind of overreaching a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he's he's trying to take all the, the fries in one bite. He's not doing a little bit at a time. And he keeps uh, accusing these superpowers of overplaying their hand with him. It's like, no, they hold all the cards, Abote. You don't hold anything. <laughs> you need everything. Yeah. Amin continued his rapid ascension but regrettably for him, was no longer allowed to do any real soldiering. From January 1965 onward, he was a political figure whose successes and fate were linked with Abodes. Their relationship got even closer 
during an open rebellion in Uganda's western neighbor, the Congo, now called Zaire. The rebels were fighting to overthrow the authoritarian ruler, Mobutu Sese Seko, but it was going poorly. Seiko's forces had pushed the rebels across the Ugandan border, and in February 1965, Seiko's planes started bombing villages in Amin's homeland, the West Nile region. Abodi wanted to support the rebels, but couldn't do so openly, so he entrusted Amin to get it done. Abodi went outside the chain of command here. As I mentioned, the true commander of the army was Brigadier General Opalot. Does Abote want to support them because he thinks he might be able to get his foot in that country? To garner favor, yeah. Because mm. they still respect him as the... Okay. These rebels respect his rule. Okay. They like Milton Abote. Okay, okay. So here's the thing, though. Did he think, genuinely think they were going to win? The Rebs? The Rebs, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. And, he, and they did. Okay, well, I'm just, I'm just going to say he seems like the type that just kind of goes, he'd pick whatever side yeah. was going to win. Because then they'd be favorable towards yeah, him. For yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure if it looked like Seiko, well, I mean, they did push him all the way across the Ugandan border, but they were able to fight back. Like, I guarantee you, a boat they bet on the Atlanta Falcons winning the Super Bowl. Shit. So they went ahead 28-3. Turned the game off. Yeah, he, yeah, he's like, I won all my money already. Yeah. And then, What's the point? And then Tom Brady got him. I might as well go wait in line <laughs> at the sports book to cash this fucker in. <laughs> Could you imagine all the people who were doing that? Oh, my God. And then just Yikes. had to slink away because mm-hmm. they were embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I saw that happen at the Minneapolis Miracle. Like everybody was leaving the stadium, and then Diggsy caught that ball. I, oh, I remember you called me when it happened. I, oh I couldn't God. hear anything. That was nuts. Wow. Now, this operation led to a named incident known as the Congo Gold Scandal. This is the next chapter in Amin's career threatening events. Abode ordered Amin to take gold and ivory from the Congo rebels, sell them, and use the money to buy weapons and ammo for them. Were they going to agree to give it to him? Yeah, they met to do it. This was oh, all, this was this all is... agreed upon. Yeah. Okay. I was like, I'd be kind of scared if he was just trying to take it from them. Now, this scandal came to light about a month after this, when Kenyan government officials seized 75 tons of Chinese weapons being transported through Kenya en route to the Congo and coming from Tanzania. So, through three countries that definitely supported President Seiko, that he was taking Congo rebel money, buying weapons from the Chinese, and smuggling it in through Mozambique, Kenya, and Tanzania, who <laughs> supported Seiko. So you can see how this is a huge region-wide scandal. Yeah, yes. Not to mention... I mean, was selling them personally and putting that money in his personal bank yeah. account to buy weapons with. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember this part about his embezzle. <laughs> I don't know, can you even call it embezzlement? I'll call I guess. it embezzlement because yeah. guess what? He shaved off a fucking fat stack for himself <laughs> by selling Congo Rebel gold and ivory. The Congo gold scandal was a key event in Ugandan history. The result of the inquiry would remain sealed until 1971, but since the commission held its meetings in the open, the broad outlines have always been known. In the end, the commission found there was nothing wrong with what Abodi and Amin had done and exonerated them both. Hmm, okay. Did he, uh, do you think there was fault play in exonerating him? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. 100%. It's like... 
having uh, Marjorie Green Taylor doing the impeachment tr- trial of Donald Trump. Yes. Like, we know <laughs> the outcome already. We know what's going to happen here. <laughs> this is as, as solid as that Atlanta <laughs> Falcons bet I made. This caused the Bugandan royalty, largely serving in a ceremonial sense, to fly into an outrage. North and South would be ideologically... North and South would be ideologically... Okay, ideologically. North and South would be ideologically divided and tensions would flare again between the educated, civilized South and the primitive, brutish North. Mm. Divide and conquer. Old British strategy. Mm. Do you think people feel this way about us? Yes, they should. Like Texas thinks we're a bunch of brutes up here, a bunch of silly Norwegians. Or they think we're little pansy butts. (laughs) Well, we're, we're... we're acclimated to multiple weather climates. So That's we're, the thing. We're powerful. I already know that I have plaque psoriasis mm. from this weather. <laughs> they don't yet. They don't have the level of allergens we have. No. They'll never make it up here. Mm-mm. Quickly after the inquiry, Abote acted decisively, calling a cabinet meeting and arresting members who were loyal to the Bugandans. It was clear to everyone that if Abode didn't act in this fashion, the king and five key cabinet ministers would have moved against him. Abode's next orders were pretty extreme. He arrested General Opalot, the leader of the army, suspended the constitution, and took all state power for himself, firing the ceremonial king in the process and accusing him of plotting with foreign governments like the U.S. and the British to overthrow him. Do you think there's any truth to that? We will actually get to that. Okay. I don't okay. want to say. Okay. 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 <laughs> With this, Abode flipped the script from a coup against him into his own coup, and Idi Amin <laughs> was crucial. Everything was lined up for Abode to deal the final blow to the Bagandan monarchy. The police, the army, the intellectual class, and laborers alike were excited. On April 15th, he presented a new constitution to Parliament, effectively removing all power, land ownership, and legal status of the Bagandans. In addition, traditional nobility would now be banned from holding any other public office. I don't really know, but is this kind of how Britain's uh, royal family lost, or did they give it up willingly? I'm pretty sure Liz gave it up. Okay. I'm pretty sure Liz gave it up. I was always kind of wondering that, because... I don't know if it was brutal. It was like a hostile takeover or not. But I, uh, I mean, the time of monarchies should have been over at World War One, <laughs> like when when we realized how much of a fucking problem that can be. And when you have soldiers going into war with feathers in their hats, yes, you might have a problem. What are you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking? Feather with hats, that first stupid tanks. feather hat. Feather hats, first tanks. Let's Get go. off your horse and your fancy shiny <laughs> blue uniform. <laughs> When the Bagandan parliament tried responding by banning Abode's government from Baganda, Abode and Amin launched a military takeover of the kingdom. Yeah, this is, uh, I imagine, a royal family's first like, wait, we don't actually have that much power? <laughs> what? Stand down, kneel before your king and queen here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got it, sir. <laughs> On May 22nd, 1966, when news of the coming invasion reached the Bagandan king, his loyal forces set up roadblocks leading to the palace. When the army arrived, the king's men put up a hell of an unexpected fight. After about eight hours of fighting, Amin asked for permission to mortar the king's residence. Granted, 
Within a few minutes, two huge explosions were heard, and the fighting stopped. After a several-hour standoff, the army moved in to capture the king, but in that standoff, the king had escaped out the back, hid in a neighboring house for a few days, and then fled the country to Great Britain. Total losses at the Battle of Mengo, as it's called, totaled about 400, but Amin only claims there are about 47. Yeah, is that on both sides, or that's yep, just... combined. Okay. Combined I, loss. I, I'm pretty sure more of the king's men died than Ugandan army. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they probably have horses and lances, right? They're fighting <laughs> yeah. with their guns here. Yeah, yeah they have... They, they yeah, They're straight-up medieval knights. <laughs> the knight had to comb his hair before he went into battle. Like, sorry, um, Dark Souls, this ain't gonna work. <laughs> But honestly, this sounds like a legit castle siege, right? Yeah. Like, holy yeah. shit. You they, don't think about that in 1966. No. They ba- like, the roadblocks are moats, and they fucking, <laughs> they fucking tried to defend the castle. <laughs> I wonder if there's a princess in, like, the highest tower. Probably. Probably. All Probably right. a hottie. <laughs> in 1967, a Bodhi replaced the Constitution again this time abolishing all traditional rulers and declaring himself the executive and only president, also putting in place nationalist economic policies like a Ugandan first movement in which Ugandan job candidates would be hired before immigrant applicants. I mean, this sounds really bad, but I guess for a growing country, it's kind of needed. (sighs) But for also a growing country, immigration is needed too. True, true. This new constitution was called the Pigeonhole Constitution because Abode ordered National Assembly members to pass it without reading it, and they'd find a copy in their pigeonhole mailbox tomorrow. <laughs> pigeonhole mailbox, I love that. It's pretty good. Here is a piece of a speech from Abode where he really, really wants to expel the Indians from the country, an idea universally believed to be a crazy one of a means. Regarding non-Ugandans who are non-Africans, the majority of whom are British citizens of Indian origin, a comprehensive exercise is now being undertaken. Firstly, this involves the documentation of all non-citizens living in Uganda. Secondly, a detailed documentation of persons now popularly known as Indians holding British passports is being made. As far as Uganda is concerned, these people are not citizens and are not entitled to remain in our country at their own will or because they cannot be admitted to any other country. They have never shown commitment to the cause of Uganda or even Africa. Their interest is to make money, which they then export to various capitals of the world. Government will arrange a systematic manner through which these persons are to disengage themselves from their hold on and continued residence in our country. This is like the most um, proper racist kind of uh, saying I've seen here. And the the thing <laughs> that you will see when you Google Idi Amin's name, one of the is first this? completes is Idi Amin expels Asians. Guess what? It wasn't his fucking idea. It was a boat day. He had everything in place, including government systems to track, document, and export. So it's all he did when he took power was execute the groundwork a boat he already laid. Gotcha. Okay. But how did he feel about the uh, Indians in the country? He hated them. Okay. Ever since he was a boy doing the forced labor to pay the to help his mom pay taxes. Uh, doing forced labor for Indian sugar magnates mm. for like, why do they own property in this country? Is what he thought. Not a big fans of the Bob's invading. 
not even <laughs> close. I can't get out. That's like one of my favorite memes. Show me Bob's invasion. Yeah, send Bob's invasion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So uh, that's interesting. That's like a big. That's a big thing. I'm sure a lot of people believe. Oh yeah. You know. As the National Assembly was voting on this constitution, just to make sure they voted the right way, a mean soldier surrounded the building and his helicopters hovered overhead. (laughs) I mean, you got to make sure everyone's voting. God. Uganda was poor. There was virtually no industry, and over 50% of the population were self-employed, which basically means they were subsistence farmers. This was being blamed on a boating. His grip on power was fading, and Amin was right behind him to pick up the slack. He began bragging about the power he wielded over a Bodhi, and in 1967, Amin was wheeling and dealing with familiar heads of state in Israel and Britain and making new friends in China and the Soviet Union. Well, I mean, yeah, they got the cooler guns, I guess, at this time, right? And, and Amin's learning. He learned how to. He learned from a Bodhi how to play the British and Israelis off each other, mm. and now he wants to add communism into the mix. <laughs> like, which one of you is going to sell? Is going to send me more guns for free? Okay. Communists or Westerners? Okay, what year did did Russia start invading Afghanistan? Oh, was don't that... put me on the spot. Well, like that. no, I don't. It was know. after this, though. It was after this. Was it eighties? Okay. I believe, right? Was it? Yeah, I bet you're right. Um, I was gonna say. Th- I mean, from the sounds of it, the Israelis probably would uh, like the Russians for doing that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Here's the other thing. Like, if a, a Bote was kicking all the Indians out, um, well, no. He had it, never been able to start it, but, but he was the process, yeah. I, here's the other thing. The Israelis, if they didn't like the Middle Eastern countries, but they're working with Uganda, who's primarily a Muslim country, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, they were trying to get their foothold in there. Mm. Uh, There was no uh, state religion at the time. The army was primarily Muslim, but that's just the army. It's not a secular. It wasn't a secular state the way Israel is, where their religion is uh, innately tied with their governing. Gotcha. In August 1967, the Israelis stepped up their display of commitment to Uganda by sending Colonel Bar-Lev. He was the most promising officer in Israel and had already proved himself as the chief of staff of Central Command in Jerusalem. Oh, hell yeah. I thought you were going to say he used his foreskin as a helmet. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, my God. He probably stuffed pennies in there to keep him safe. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, interesting. Okay, so this guy's like the poster boy for their military, essentially. Oh, yeah. yeah. He better have been attractive. And so I'm not sure. I'm not. I can't. I can't. Probably Eugene Levy eyebrows. (laughs) This demonstration of importance was definitely aimed at getting Uganda as a supporter, not only in the UN but other worldwide forums as well. By January of 1968, however, the Israelis were finding themselves phased out and replaced by either Russian or Chinese counterparts. Six Ugandan pilots were unenrolled from Israeli flight school and moved to Moscow. Barlev soon learned that Uganda would be receiving six Soviet MiG-17s as a gift. Those are fighter planes. Oh, those are fighter planes. Those MiGs. are those missiles. Mm-mm. The colonel also noticed Russian artillery teams, mortars, and anti-aircraft guns being delivered. A few days later, Barlev said with all this going on, 
if Uganda were to vote against the UN in any meetings, all Israeli support would be removed. I have a feeling that's a bit of foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) At this time, like the Russians, the planes probably had like that kind of cool, like darker green with the red stripes all over it. Right, right. Or did they have like the camo on the... I just, I feel like Russia always painted their planes kind of cool. Yeah, they would do like green camo, green and black camo. Yeah, yeah, kind of liked it. In August of 1969, Amin's mother died. She was the one fixed point in Edie's chaotic life, according to his son Jafar. There is little doubt that she was the most important woman he would ever meet. His mother's funeral became one of the breaking points between him and Abode. It was the most lavish and expensive funeral in Ugandan history and included an Israeli flyover in which a wreath was parachuted perfectly onto her grave. Everyone How loved is that it. possible? I, pff, those goddamn Israelis. <sighs> God damn, Eugene Levy's not even going to get this type of funeral. Not a chance, because he's a goddamn Canadian. <laughs> or, Jer- okay, Jerry Seinfeld's not going to, Larry David's Ooh. definitely Ooh. not going to get this. And, no, not with the fatwa, or whatever. <laughs> fatwa. fatwa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, how the fuck do you get a wreath to land out of a plane onto her grave? That's insane. Yeah, that's a precision dropping, is what that God is. God damn. Everyone loved it. But Abode wanted to know just who the hell paid for it. I'm guessing Spoiler he did. Alert. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It was Uganda. <laughs> Towards the end of the 60s, Uganda was a pot boiling over. Political analysts the world over knew the question was when, not if, the coup would come. With West Nile region soldiers' presence in the military growing, Abode made a desperate seize at taking over the military. He found the perfect opportunity, the death of Egyptian President Nasser. He sent Amin in his place, and while he was gone, Abode restructured the army, promoting every officer one rank and appointing chiefs of staff that answered to the president directly instead of Amin, once again disrespecting the chain of command. I was, I feel like this is a classic, like, bad managerial move. God. You just, like, you're the new manager, and you come making all these promises— and then you don't really keep any of them. Everyone at first is like, man, this is awesome. We're Fuck getting yeah. promoted. We're getting more money. And then you realize it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, there's no plan. Yeah. We're still just as fucked as we always were. <laughs> yeah. When Amin returned, obviously him and Abode were not on speaking terms. And each of them were working out plots to kill the other. Mm. Amin started asking Abode publicly how he could live so comfortably while the common man lived or died based on whether crops came in or not. Idi Amin was only seen in public from now on, surrounded by scores of his most trusted and well-armed security men. He knew he could be arrested at any moment. In January 1971, Abodi was scheduled to appear in Singapore for a meeting about sanctioning apartheid South Africa. Since Uganda was about to explode, Abote really didn't want to go, but he had a genuine vested interest in seeing apartheid abolished. Really? Okay. I uh, obviously hated it. A white minority. True. That, that really just rang true all across colonized true. Africa. I don't I can't get put a finger on a bote, though. He just seems to kind of go with whatever is, is in his interest. I think he's scrambling at all times because he yeah. he is economically smart. He was trained economically, but I don't think you can be trained to turn a country into a country with he, no resources. Okay, is he kind of like Shredder? 
and the Brits were Master Splinter. Oh, or no, is that the other way around? Other other way around. Okay, Shredder or er, Splinter <laughs> learned at the hands of Shredder, and Amin... so Shredder is the British. Amin, it, oh, Abode is Splint, Splint. and then. Amin is basically all four turtles combined. combined yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And he he some people thought he had uh schizophrenia, but that's really? yeah, he didn't. Okay. So here we are with all the pieces in place for the coup. The long-term reasons were exaggeration of tribal differences in north and south, the unequal economic structure in the country with ultra minority Asians and whites holding over 60% of the wealth. And Amin's brilliant strategy of stacking the ranks with loyal West Nile soldiers. Mm. So I, I suppose this makes sense now why he was waiting for it to be arrested, but he wouldn't really care because that's the spark mm-hmm. to set him off. But he also knew Abote, if he were to end up in custody, would kill him. Really? Oh, okay. yes. So he was afraid of that. Too. Oh, yes. This is a risky game he's playing <laughs> right there. It can go if he dies. They're for sure attacking him. You know the Game of Thrones? Yeah. You either win or you die. (laughs) Cersei says that to Ned before he gets his head chopped and it fell off. Independence and freedom had not brought the benefits the population had expected. Finally, there were the international factors. There were British, Israeli, Chinese, and Russian training officers on the ground, and this made the U.S. and the rest of the West really worried about Africa falling into the hands of the communists. There is a piece of circumstantial evidence that many have tied to British involvement in the coup. During the Singapore conference, the British PM faced a hail of criticism over his arms sales to racist South Africa, and in a fury asked the combined African leaders... I wonder how many of you will be allowed to return to your countries after this conference. Not good. Not good, sir. He was correct either way. On January 25th, 1971, Amin's forces moved to secure strategic positions around the capital and sealed off Entebbe International Airport to prevent Abote's return. Abode's private GSU put up heavy resistance, but were ultimately too disorganized to stop the coup. By 4.30 p.m., it was announced that the army and police under General Idi Amin Dada had control over the entire country. Mm, Okay, so right now, Abote is the former Dallas Cowboys owner, and Amin is now um, Jerry Jerry Jones, Jones, yes. And Abote is is not allowed to return, just like the former owner. I'm pretty sure this is exactly how he got control of the Dallas Cowboys, but uh, yeah, yeah, I remember this part where they're like, Abote was gone, and he tried to come back on his private plane, like, <laughs> no, just go away. See you later, buddy. This kicked off a week-long party in Buganda, not because they loved Amin, but because of how much they hated Abote. Meanwhile, Amin was rounding up and killing a- even potential opponents in the army. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office prepared a briefing for British military commanders about the coup, and even now they underestimate Amin as a puppet open to manipulation. General Amin has risen from the ranks. He lacks education and has only muddled political philosophy. The timing of the coup was dictated by Amin's own fear of downfall, not by any desire to save his country 
from a bote. They're saying he he didn't really care. He just wanted to save it from a bote. He didn't have any big grand scheme kind of thing. Is that what he's saying? He just wanted to save his own bacon mm. from a bote. Because mm. he's mean, too he's too stupid to have any political philosophy of his own or anything. So he so right after he took control, he basically did a Stalin. Yep. Just fucking killed yep. anybody who he oh. even remotely could have opposed. Him. I bet he wishes they could have shot down a Bodhi's plane too, because he's gonna be a thorn yeah. in Idi Amin's side yeah. coming up here. Oh yeah, a Bodhi himself stirred the sub D conspiracy theory oh, pot, yeah. telling the New York Times, "Amin struck to prevent me from arresting him for." disappearing military equipment, as well as two murders. This coup was backed by foreign forces, specifically Israel. And he colored in my coloring book. <laughs> um, two murders? What the hell are the two murders? Yeah, there was two military officer murders okay. that Abode was going around saying Amin committed. <laughs> he definitely probably did. <laughs> there is no proof, even now, of any foreign involvement in an official capacity. Certainly, Amin had been advised and learned from foreign officers his whole life, but no State Department memos have come out that would indicate official involvement from the U.S., Britain, Israel, Russia, or China. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you know if America was there. By it, now, at least. Yeah, there'd be so many goddamn Starbucks there. Yeah. <laughs> Chick-fil-A's. However, the British and Israelis certainly had a hand in helping Amin establish his rule after the coup. They were in love with President Amin and were fully aware of the methods he was using to keep control. Akoli and Lango tribal villages were being targeted by the army, not to kill civilians, but to round up the soldiers among them and execute them. The Akoli made up a third of the entire armed forces. Holy shit, that's a lot of people. Hell yes. Holy fuck. For the first few weeks following the coup, Amin focused exclusively on internal affairs, declaring this the Second Republic of Uganda and establishing his position through ethnic purges in the army. His main concern externally was a Kenyan-based, Abode-supported invasion. After a month, Amin had released 1,500 political prisoners from maximum security incarceration. The overwhelming majority were Bagandan monarchists, and every single one of them would campaign vigorously for their new president, holding pro-Amin rallies across the country. Okay, do you think he only released them because they changed their mind? Yes. <laughs> okay. He only released them because they would, ca I, I guarantee, he knew they would campaign for him. Plus, the Bagandans were super sympathetic to Amin at this point. Yeah. For no reason. I mean, really no reason. He's well, going to let them down. I mean, they probably thought it was a Pote who attacked him, right? Yeah. And a Bote yeah, had Bote, yeah. completely dismantled their power yeah. and said, not even in a ceremonial sense will you be important anymore. I would guess Amin kind of played into their... They're uh, like, oh, I can't believe that sick son of a bitch did that to you guys. Yep. You don't even have a single fucking horse in your stables he anymore. He took away your pride. <laughs> I will restore it for you. You don't even have someone to spit on when you're in court anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Another part of the population was breathing a sigh of relief as well, although they shouldn't have. The Indian population. Little did they know, Amin was going to pick up right where Abode left off as far as they were concerned. These huge political spectacles, such as prisoner releases, helped distract the public from the continued killing of army personnel based on tribal heritage, and also from Amin's biggest misstep in the early days of his rule, 
By focusing on internal affairs so heavily, he didn't convince his neighboring African leaders to recognize his rule. Okay, all right. Here's the here's what I'm kind of wondering. The when he's killing the tribal soldiers, do you think they just kill any men or young boys in there that could potentially become soldiers too? You know, that's one of the problems that mm. uh, we don't really know because yeah. we know how America treats. Uh, they consider militants anyone from the ages of 13 to 72 as long as they're a male. Yeah. So even a farmer, if they fit in that category, is now a dead militant and not a dead civilian. Well, I feel like any military, that's kind of their thought pattern, right? If they're, I mean, especially during this time, it's like they could grow up and fight one day and cut off the head of them now. They're... I think know, based on that. I think based on censuses and research done, it was pretty much shown that it was men that wore a uniform for Uganda, okay. Okay. not so much kids or uh, unrelated things. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. A bote, on the other hand, was flying around to all of Uganda's neighbors and gaining support. Tanzania was the strongest in their condemnation of Amin, saying. The government and people of Tanzania unequivocally condemns the purported seizure of the power by Major General Amin and continues to regard President Milton Obote as the president of Uganda. Hell, thank Fuck you, Cookie yes. Monster. <laughs> you know he's the leader of Tanzania. He has the most chocolate chips per capita. I wonder what place has the most chocolate chips Per, like, population per capita? thing, yeah. Uh, per 100,000 people, how many bags of chocolate chips is there? The Swiss. <laughs> you think so? It's the Swiss, for sure. I feel like they probably look down on American chocolate chip cookies. Oh, yeah. Because you're, like, using just whatever shit ones you buy from the store, not, like, good chocolate. The gray taste of Hershey. <laughs> Overall, Amin's early days were marked by a combination of domestic finesse and international clumsiness which is exactly what you'd expect from someone with local political knowledge and little to no international experience. Another strike against the Western-backed conspiracy theorists. Mm. These early months are considered the honeymoon period, and it surely would not last. With no idea how to rule, Amin had to learn fast. His two immediate concerns were military invasions from Sudan and Tanzania and getting international recognition for his regime. The British helped with this immensely, first convincing Ethiopia to recognize, followed by themselves, Ghana, and Malawi. A stream of British military advisors descended on the country, and it seemed to many that the former colonial masters were doing everything they could to play empire again. From outside looking in, you can kind of see why they'd want to help him and garner support of the other loyal countries to them still to face off against the countries that have already kicked them out and rebelled. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. right. I and mean, also because we're, we're still playing that anti-communist game. Oh, we still don't yeah. want to mean falling forget, into the hands. I always forget that. That's I forget that I mean, pesky little thing. God man. damn. It, 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 it was the only thing the world worried about. It was pretty good. It was pretty simple back then. Yeah. You only had to worry about crazy guys with a backwards alphabet. That's like about <laughs> it. <laughs> on July 11th, Amin scheduled a trip to Great Britain with a stop for fuel in Israel. He was attempting the chess game antics he had learned from Abote. He was asking the Brits for debt relief for previous arms deals and also wishing to purchase Harrier jets, which he was obsessed with. 
The Brits wanted to hold off selling complicated, super expensive aircraft or forgiving any debts until Uganda's financial report came out from the International Monetary Fund. They didn't outright refuse his requests, but they did ask for his patience. Do you know what Harrier jets are? Yeah, it's the ones on the carriers, right? No, Harrier jets are the ones that can take off vertically. They have those uh, okay. swivel engines and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They never really took off as like a super <laughs> useful plane, although they're fucking awesome. The Israelis laid out the red carpet as well, taking him to see the Dome of the Rock and to meet Golda Meir. Amin presented them with a long list of weapons and planes he wanted, and the Israelis also dragged their feet. Mm. Hey, here's a question. What do what do the Muslims feel happened in... Uh... In Israel, did they? Because I know Jesus is like a prophet for them, right? Yeah. Like, what did they think he was just born there and all that jazz? Right. Like, is mm-hmm. that just mm-hmm. kind of they have that in the uh, Quran as well? Yeah. The thing they don't have is that Jesus is the Son of God and was right. resurrected. Right. He's just a prophet. Yeah. Okay. He's just a really yeah. smart, groovy dude. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. His first international trip as president was a bust, as far as he was concerned. His two closest allies had sent him away empty-handed. This trip was the climax of Amin's credibility in the Western world. He returned from being celebrated and catered to, to finding Uganda's domestic problems worse than ever. Most notably, the army. Uh Uh-oh. Amin would also be embroiled in his first international debacle upon his return. Two Americans, Robert Seidel, a lecturer, and Nicholas Stroh, a journalist, had traveled to the town of... Mbarara to investigate the true rumors of mass killings of Akoli and Langi soldiers in the barracks. Seidel and Stroh then vanished into thin air. The U.S. pressured Amin for nine months before he finally set up an inquiry into the matter. So they actually, like, yikes, holy <laughs> shit. Usually that sends, I mean, America wasn't quite the world police they are now, but uh, usually this kind of... uh, I mean, we were policing Vietnam, weren't we? Yeah, but I mean, usually this, like, sends in the attack dogs. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) The commission hit roadblock after roadblock, mostly because soldiers involved refused to testify. In the end, the most reliable info came from soldiers who were in exile in Tanzania, The report found that the Americans had been killed by the Ugandan Army's Simba Battalion. In 1973, Amin's government took responsibility and compensated the victims' families. Well, I see why the Lion King named Simba that there. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's... Simba means lion in Swahili, by the way. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here's the thing. Yeah, I imagine Amin wouldn't want that information getting out, so he probably didn't have any problem with just having him executed. And who knows if he even gave the order. This could have been done by autonomous military action. That's their fucking nuts. I forgot about that. You know what? If I were to bet, and this is conjecture on my part, if I were to bet, it would be uh, a really gung-ho junior officer that was like, ooh, I know it'll curry Amin's favor, Will. We'll stop this fucking journalist from getting his shit out there. Yeah, real Steve Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Those Americans were (laughs) the alternator. You know who he looks like? He looks like a character actor I just saw on TV, and I will show him to you after the show. Okay, all right. 
The imprisonments, firings, and killings against the Ecole and Lange ramped up. Since they made up the majority of the trained army, massive recruitment drives were needed, including signing up non-Ugandans from Sudan, Zaire, and other neighboring countries. West Nilers were, of course, preferred and fast-tracked up the ranks. So, are these uh, mil- these parts of the military, are they not fighting back? Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's oh, killing them. Well, yes, yes. Uh, the thing is, the way that he had structured them was that they... Th- in order to keep them from just running roughshod over whatever squad or battalion mm. they're in, there could only be like 30% in each unit, 30% of Coley in each unit in order to stop oh. them from just basically having their own tribal regiment. Oh, so, okay. And that the made, other soldiers that made were it easy more for than him willing. To, gotcha. Okay. That would make it easy for him to overpower them Absolutely. in each of the little groups. Wow. Because he still had 70% that were diehard aminos. <sighs> Can you imagine you're just sleeping in your bunk? You know, you see, you see, like, um, Full Metal Jacket, you get this, the soap party. Here, you just get shot. Yes. You know, if you're lucky. Fucking A. Jesus. I, I, what I think is probably a soap party, but with knives instead of soaps. That's, you I don't bet. even think they gave him a bullet? I hope they stabbed him to death. Goddamn, I hope they shot him in the head. Oh my God. Just a, you know, obviously it's horrible, but like that's a quick death, hopefully. Be nice. Uh, yeah, putting a knife in a bunch of socks and. You know, Korean movies. Them. Have you ever seen Korean movies where they just stab them people so much? Mm-hmm. That's what I imagined, but I don't know. Uh, could you put knives in socks and just do that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be insane. Okay, almost like a soap party with knives, but without socks. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that jokey aside, that's like, God, that's fucked up. Ethnic cleansing is fucked up, man. Yeah, absolutely. Ugandan army records show that during 1971, almost 20,000 men were recruited. If Amin hadn't purged the Akoli, the army should now have roughly 27,000 soldiers. Somehow, there were only 11,409, which left about 16,000 unaccounted for. That's a lot of people to be go missing they're dead they're holy dead. Yeah. shit i mean dead or banished jesus christ i mean this if that was sixteen thousand carol baskin husbands God. i mean you might think something's funny well, there she'd still be free <laughs> for some reason <laughs> maybe she should be the president of uganda <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't hurt have fucking the largest supply of tiger <laughs> of uh sardine oil that's what she, I don't know why every barrack smells like sardine oil. (laughs) She's rubbing her hubby down. (laughs) Amin kept pruning the army. Soon other tribes, even those in the West Nile region, started receiving the same treatment the Ecole and Lange faced. The increasing ethnic repression came from official channels, but it was the autonomous side of the army that caused much more harm to innocent people. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, though. As far as the army was concerned, this military takeover gave them free reign to get rich, often by killing. They likely got that impression from this excerpt from one of Amin's speeches. Your gun is your breadwinner, your mother, your father, your great protector. <laughs> the, um, yeah, I mean, I would assume the autonomous army was just kind of like, well, if we're killing these people, we might as well take all their shit, yep. too. yep. Yikes. And that's where you see also a lot of soldiers deserting their posts because they're now business owners and shit. Oh, my God. 
Amin's need to appease the army and his military idea of what governing was sent him on a spending and borrowing spree that took Abodi's economic failures and quadrupled them. In his first year, Amin purchased 36 armored cars from the UK, 15,000 rifles from the French, seven Sherman tanks and a convoy of trucks from Israel, nine helicopters each from the US and Italy. Okay, are the armored cars for him, or are they for the military? Yeah, the A-cars are for, like, yeah. they're armored personnel carriers, APCs. Oh, okay. I mm-hmm. thought these were, like, the bulletproof cars that, like, really famous people Like the president? In. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he got those for himself to be, so he could be catered around safely. Nah, they were, I think they were called, like, half-tracks back in the day, and they were armored gotcha. cars. So they had okay. half-tracks and half-front uh, wheels, and they would carry... Uh, squads of people, eight to ten people. Okay, you remember when you get like a two-kill streak in uh, Call of Duty? I think you can call an APC, or maybe it's more. I don't know. I think you're right. I think you're right. Call an APC. He also appropriated large amounts of funds to military construction, including multiple new state-of-the-art air bases. Concurrently, Uganda's main exports, cotton and coffee, were trading at record low prices on the world market, and nobody was paying their taxes as the Indian businessmen were getting all their money out of Uganda. It's not good. Amin borrowed $20 million from the IMF and then was cut off. British banks lent him another six before they cut him off, and still by the end of the year, Uganda's government was dead broke, unable to conduct even routine business. The cost of living for the population went up about 20%. Yikes, holy shit. The divorce from Israel came in February 1972. Amin was growing annoyed with their white racist arrogance. They kept bothering him about anti-Arab UN support as they considered Amin in their back pocket. Mm, okay. he, would, he would have a temper tantrum and strike back about that. Gotcha. Amin took his first visit to the Arab world that month, visiting Gaddafi in Libya. Upon his return, Amin started spouting incredibly anti-Zionist sentiment. By the end of March, all Israelis, in theory, had been kicked out of the country. I can just imagine him in Libya, and Gaddafi's like, Jesus, you sound like fucking Walt Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Gaddafi's... Still alive, right? Negative. Negative. He didn't die that long ago, though, right? It was 2012, maybe. Okay. I remember Hillary shaking her head on camera going, we came, we saw, he died. Wait, is he's not the one where um, they... Raped his ass with knives? Yeah. Was that him? Yeah. And it was on video? Dragged him through the streets, yeah. Oof, Jesus, okay, I remember that now. That's a fucked up video. I remember he made a statement. He was like, yeah, come and get me. I'm going to be in my oil fields and I'm going to blow them all. Like he said he was going to stand in the middle and blow up his oil fields. Like a spurned lover on a warpath, Amin got to work on getting the Indians out of the country. He started with a census on October 17, 1971. He claimed the vision of an Asianless Uganda came to him in a dream, although we know this is a continuation (laughs) of a Bodhi's plan. I would say that is a weird dream, man. If he actually had that dream. Oh, God. I, I didn't see a single Indian person in Asia or in Uganda. I can imagine he woke up in the morning, what, after that? Oh, yeah. 
And the British, they were fine with this explanation. They would spin this as simple-minded anti-Asian racism on the part of Amin instead of the Asian presence being a legacy of imperial rule and expelling them was a measure taken to regain some control of the economy. Five days after the dream, a decree was issued ordering all non-citizen Asians to vacate the country within 90 days, mostly British passport holders. The British government went into scramble mode. They didn't want all these Asians crashing down on the UK after all. As late as December 1972, they were still trying to figure out which one of the islands they still owned they could dump these Asians on. Eventually, however, the Brits accepted responsibility for their own citizens. According to the High Commission, around 24,000 were relocated to the UK, 2,500 relocated to India and Pakistan, and 1,500 would set down roots in Canada. Interesting. Okay. I mean, honestly, when I was uh, when I was in uh, Britain, a lot of a uh, lot of Indian citizens there. A lot of them. I'm wondering um, if uh, uh, a bunch of them are descendants of the former Ugandan Indians. Very, I also, mean, very... because India was a giant part of the UK for a while, or the Commonwealth, you know. Oh, They gotcha. loved it so okay. much, yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Like, honestly, you know, you hear this now and you're like, Jesus, you know, Britain's horrible. <laughs> but it honestly, that has to be like the most diverse place I've ever seen in my life. Sure, yeah. Like, London is just... London, you're, I've heard when you go to London, you're you're not going to run into a British person. No. It's going it, to be an international it's person. It's kind of like when you go into Cold Stone Ice Cream. There's like 50 different flavors. That's yeah. just... Every single type of person you can imagine is is in London there. I like that sweet cream ice cream. That heavy-ass sweet cream ice cream is so good. I haven't had cold stone in so long. Someone We were talking about this recently. Um, Someone was saying they knew someone who liked to mix cotton candy ice cream with um, peanut butter cups. Apparently, that was their favorite. I don't know. Get get a life, you (laughs) fucking loser. I don't know why that combo, but whatever. Does that person listen to the show? No. Okay, go. I don't don't think so. Get a life, you fucking loser. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the country, the expulsion was incredibly popular. The expellees' bank accounts were taken by the Ugandan government, while their abandoned homes and businesses were quickly seized by locals or passing groups of soldiers, or even the state itself. I was going to say, you didn't mention that part, but I assume there was a lot of that happening. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're not letting them leave with the money. (laughs) No. The expulsion was also the linchpin on the divorce with the British. They suspended a $10 million loan they had promised him, and Amin took it personally. He started claiming the Brits were planning an invasion and the military training team was going to spearhead that operation. So he did the only logical thing he could think of, expel all British. By the end of the year, the white British population shrunk from 7,000 to 3,000. You, I would, you know, I would assume if you were a British person in Uganda at this point, like the 3,000 that stayed there, wouldn't you be like terrified? I would be shit in my pants. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you might just wake up with a knife party next to your bed. Yeah. <laughs> a soapy knife party. <laughs> well, the British invasion was a lie, but the one about to happen was very real. Mm. On September 17th, 1972, about a thousand loyal Abodi refugee troops led by two senior Akoli officers were massing at the southern border. This ragtag group of soldiers came from various exile groups, including an obscure Maoist organization called Fronasa, 
which was the front for national salvation, whose leader was a plucky, brilliant young nationalist named Yoweri Museveni, so why- future president of the country and current president of Uganda. Really? Mm-hmm. And he is a believer in um, Chinese Maoist, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because I know they obviously have communists, but like I always hear him refer to Maoist as like its own unique type right definitely it's it's the chinese spin on uh on socialism for sure i t- i was telling someone um like when i went to the museum of death the maoist china uh murder pictures were some of the worst i've ever seen because of how brutally efficient they were well yeah they had like the death by thousand lashes thing oh on there. my god yeah holy shit holy there's shit. nothing left of the body it's no. just like whipped to death it's so fucked up <sighs> That's like flaying your entire body by whip. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a hard picture to look at. That's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. I like the North Korean one where they put you in front of an anti-tank gun and blow you away. At least that's easy. <sighs> not much lefty, is there? Who cares? <laughs> at least I'm not getting whipped a thousand times. You just, you literally will turn into cotton candy ice cream. <sighs> put some peanut butter cups on me. <laughs> The refugee warriors planned their assault around two targets. The main force would cross the southern border and attack the town of Masaka, while a crack force would be flown to Entebbe to secure the airport and go for the radio station and other strategic targets. So is Entebbe is this is like would be like our MSP. Like this right. is the main Right. Entebbe International, okay. yep. I wonder how many airports they like actually had at the time across the country. Ooh. How many that weren't mm. just like uh, like, like little dirt, strips, a dirt yeah. road or mm-hmm. something? I'm yeah. pretty sure this is probably one of the only ones outside of a military air base that mm. could probably handle uh, landing a jet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because so otherwise you'll punch a- you'll punch right through the ground if you try and land a jet jet even at somewhere that's not rated for it. Mm. The tires will punch right through the fucking ground. Really? Yep. Okay. Interesting. This invasion was an utter failure. In addition, they attacked a southern town, and at this time, the Bagandans were still very loyal to Amin. He had not yet burned that bridge. In the aftermath of the failed invasion, the Bagandans wished they would have sided with the rebels. Amin started executing everyone he even thought was collaborating with a Bodhi, most of whom were former Baganda nobility. The chief justice was killed the vice president of their university, student leaders, military officers, and former ministers in a Bodhi's government. Gee, student leaders? Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, when you hear about some of these, uh, like if you take like the uh, the Mexican cartel, right? Mm. They kill students mm. because... <laughs> That's the future. Yeah, and they speak out against them. Yep. And lame is. Yeah. Oh, yep. The That's students true. are the rebels. Very true. By 1973... Amin had flipped a 180 kickflip, no scope 360. <laughs> That's going, a sick move. Going from pro-Israel, pro-West, to pro-Arab, anti-British. The honeymoons were over, and it was time for some bloodshed. Okay. Most of the killings, kidnapping, and human rights violations took place in the central years of his reign. Between 1973 and the end, journalistic sources from inside the country faded away. Almost all of the intellectuals, writers, and journalists had fled the country. This is pretty common with yeah. uh, well, the intelligentsia leaves or they get killed. That's... Well, I was going to say, 
they had to have heard about the suspected two Americans getting killed. Mm-hmm. Why are they even still there? Mm-hmm. Like, you can wear as many press protecting hoodies or whatever. Yeah. I don't think they the care. The blue bulletproof yeah. vests that say press. Guess what? I see them getting their heads cut off all the time. <laughs> no, thank you, CNN. I'll stay home. Yeah. <laughs> Uganda was free-floating. Amin had cut himself off from the Western world and was having temper tantrums all over the place. One day, Amin brought up the old tactic of blaming the Langi and Akoli for plotting with Abode. And the very next day, he withdrew this and instead blamed imperialists and Zionists. He was just U-turning policies okay. all over. So I can see where the uh, schizophrenia exactly. thing's coming in. Exactly. Yeah, Okay. Uganda also participated in their first public executions in 1973. Ooh. Suspected guerrilla fighters and armed robbers were shot in the middle of villages. Internationally, the biggest changes were Amin's focus on third world countries and slowly aligning himself with the Soviet Union, or at least appearing to do so. A superpower's financial support was required for Amin. He never knew when the next attack would be coming from Tanzania. Mm. Having spent his first few years touring Uganda exhaustively, Amin began his international tour. In January, he established ties with communist East Germany. In March, Saudi Arabia gifted Uganda with $53 million, and the next month, a huge Russian military delegation arrived. How much ass kissing did he do for $53 million? Jesus. It, it must be nice to be the new country on the block mm. where ideologies are just fighting over <laughs> like no come with us i'll give you 53 million fucking dollars i guess saudi arabia that's probably not that much money for them it's a, a lot of a lot of oil money they there. also loved him that's ah. where he spent his exile until he died in 2003 saudi arabia yep. huh? kingdom of saudi arabia mm. 1974 saw more constitutional reorganization political repression and economic decline one of his lieutenant colonels, whom the men deeply respected, started saying vaguely anti-Amin things. Uh-oh. And one night, he was beaten and stuffed in the trunk of a car. Three days later, in a meeting with his governors, Amin reported they found the colonel's body floating in the Nile River. Because of this, fighting broke out amongst the enlisted men in the capital. The chief of staff, General Arube, also committed suspicious suicide, and Amin took over the situation personally, yeah. making the Abodi mistakes again, just trying to take <laughs> over everything. I love suspicious suicide. You instantly know <laughs> there's really nothing suspicious about it. It's one of those it Clinton suicide. Foundation suicides. Yeah. <laughs> That's my new joke now that I've... Uh, Heard some people saying QAnon conspiracies. I'm like, I bet the goddamn Clintons are involved. <laughs> Clintons killed them. This is Clinton Foundation all over it. Clinton and Antifa, my two things to blame right now. <laughs> Economically, the country was in free fall. The British reported the Ugandan deficit at four times the expected amount, and agricultural exports crashed sharply, with sugar production in the country down 75% and cotton down, hif- down 50%. Okay, is that because they just didn't have the bodies or like people were just not working and exactly. not scared? Exactly. Yeah. People weren't working anymore because they were they were gobbling up this Asian property. They didn't know what they were doing. All they were doing was farming the crops they would need to get by. They weren't farming mm. the the industry crops. Mm. Yeah, you got to have some exports, don't you? Well, let me ask you a question. Yes. How much longer do you think Amin can hold this house of cards together? I'm going to guess not more longer than a half decade. We'll say 
one more episode worth. Ooh, let's put it that way. Okay. So let's see you all in the uh, stunning conclusion, the actual stunning conclusion this time, to Idi Amin Dada. Hell yeah. It's fun to learn about countries I have no idea about. I love it. It's uh, Even though it's like a small sect of their history, yep. it's a very important sect of their history. Hey, um, any, any knowledge is good knowledge as far as I'm concerned. Right. And you're learning that... Uh, Military isn't always the answer. Sometimes you got to have a strong uh, export system and such like that. You need to have commerce. Mm, you need to have... I think he's learning that the hard way. God. And you need to have politicians. Unfortunately, yeah. generals rarely make good uh, good presents. <laughs> Unless you're Eisenhower. Unless you're Dwight. Unless then, you, you're Dwight. then you even are good enough to have a meeting with the aliens Set mm-hmm. up a peace treaty, which he allegedly did. I don't know. Well, I've seen it on the Weekly World News. <laughs> My favorite newspaper. Oh, yeah. I wonder if Amin was on there at all. Had to be. Yeah. Had they were, to be. They, were, they started in the, the 76, I think. Is that when they started? I believe so. I was reading some of their really old shit. It's pretty wild. They had a great article once about... Uh, uh, monsters living in mcdonald's ball pits it was <laughs> it was so funny uh, i wonder how many kids that scared Ooh. <laughs> uh, all right excellent job everybody excellent job thank you for tuning in uh if you want to let us know if you enjoyed part two you can do so by leaving us a form submission bumblebuttpodcast.com just fill out the thing uh it'll come to us like a regular email it's oh, awesome yeah. Another thing you can do is follow us on Twitter at BumblebuttPod and Instagram at BumblebuttPodcast. If you want to be a hero, you'll hit that follow button on Spotify for the Spotify Revolution. And if you want to be uh, an ultra hero, you'll open up your Apple Podcasts app. You'll write a five-star review if possible. And we have one. Can I hear it? Yes, you can. It's from Rob. It's five stars from Spotify. This is the the official Spotify review program here. It's called emailing <laughs> blah, 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 podcast here. Perfect. Spotifyers, <laughs> yes, email us your reviews. <laughs> I looked at Apple Podcasts to give a five-star, but I'm already committed to Spotify Premium. You guys are great. I'm from Young Youngstown, Ohio, but dated a girl from Iowa, so finding you guys... After your New York City and L.A. leaning counterpart, this felt more in tune. In retrospect, Jordan's son being predicted to become Ed Gein 2 becomes ever more real. Every week he decides to not come back to the podcast. I'll figure out Patreon after I figure out this next Texas season. Oh, yeah. Until then. Keep it real, my friends. Thank you. Um, yeah, this year's taxes are fucking wild. Yeah, I've gotten forms in the mail I didn't even know existed before. <laughs> did I tell you I started working on Bumblebus taxes? Did you? I uh, did. I spent we, last Sunday doing Are we in them. trouble? No, we're, Do we we're going to be good. good. We are going to be a losing business. So yes, perfect. We As want. we are. So, yeah. great. A lot of expenses. A lot Hell of yeah. expenses, but a lot of... Uh, Good equipment our fans have supplied us. Thank you so much for yeah, that. Without them, we wouldn't have it. We'd be on right. uh, a Yeti and probably not doing it anymore. Exactly. And uh, the fucking mixer blew up, and we had the funds to get a new one. Yeah, and now Very we have nice the one. perfect mixer. Oh, yeah. It's so good. All right, everybody. That is fantastic <laughs> i appreciate you all for listening. I appreciate Cody. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Adam. And, ladies and gentlemen... Do it like you always do it. Have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. Peace out. (laughs) 